The Dugout Premier League Preview Football Social Daily It's full steam ahead in the Premier League of late and we'll be with you every single step of the way. After some cracking games over the last few days, we're back at it again this weekend with Newcastle currently out of the relegation zone and looking to build some momentum as they host Aston Villa. Everton and Leeds do battle with both sides teetering above the dotted line. Can Frank Lampard get his side going after misfiring midweek? Plus, we ask why Southampton manager Ralph Hasenhurtl hinted earlier this week that he might put away the tactics board and possibly retire in the next two years. His Saints side travel to Old Trafford to face Manchester United on Saturday. We'll not only look at the Premier League, but also the Club World Cup. Chelsea are in the final, but is it silverware that's taken seriously? All of those questions on the agenda on today's episode of The Dugout, the Premier League podcast featuring former top flight players. My name's Niall and joining me today, we've got Southampton stalwart Francis Benali. Welcome back to the show, Franny. How are you doing? Cheers, Noel. Yeah, very good, thank you. And uh, I'm delighted to join you, especially on the back of uh, such a good victory for, for Saints. Uh, against Tottenham so yeah I'm, I'm delighted with what I saw I saw your smiling face on the telly Franny <laughs> it was one of those you know bizarre games really wasn't it I mean wonderful maybe for the neutral but you know when you've got a team involved in that sort of game when you've dominated a, especially the first 45 minutes like we saw and numerous chances that they had to sort of go in at half-time level uh, with Spurs was um, a, a disappointment and frustration then when you think they're going to be you know, on the, on the wrong end of the result and going behind to, to show the, the resilience and character to come back and win it was, was brilliant. Those games are always better under the floodlights as well, I find. It gives it a little extra buzz as well, um, floodlight midweek games. And uh, Southampton actually travelled to Manchester United this weekend. We'll talk about that game later. And one man who'll be there, seeing as he's a season ticket holder, as well as being a podcaster and a journalist, Rob Blanchett. How are you doing, Rob? I'm really good now, obviously in the middle of uh, Manchester United business where we seem to be able to have all the shots in a game and lose matches. That's a wonderful <laughs> delight to, to behold at the moment. It's better than having no shots and losing matches, I guess. But, <laughs> you know, plenty to work on from a Manchester United perspective. Now, before we talk about that game um, and before your respective sides do battle this weekend... I think we should first begin at St. James's Park because one of the games of midweek for me took place at St. James's when Newcastle beat Everton and uh, it's the venue again this weekend as Villa are the visitors to the northeast. Newcastle are now out of the relegation zone after that 3-1 win over Everton. No side in the bottom five has picked up more points than Newcastle have since Eddie Howe came in. But it's all about building on that win now, Franny, don't you think? How much of a benefit is the fact that the game is at St. James's Park? Because we know what those fans are like when they get behind their team. Oh, for sure. You know, and, and, and on the back of, you know, two victories in the Premier League, it's it's almost the right time to, to be going back and, and playing this game for them, really, isn't it? Just starting to build that momentum, that confidence, that belief that teams, you know, just just grasping for when you're you're in that position down at that that end of the table and Newcastle will be you know relishing taking this game on now I think you know and uh, and welcoming Villa to to St James's Park and the supporters will be playing a huge part in it you know we've heard Eddie Howe say that uh, you know they're, they're, they're crucial to what's going to be a, a difficult running but you know certainly going there into this game with with a lot of confidence and belief on the back of you know two wins. Yeah, winning your home games is something we say no matter where you are in the table, Rob, but I suppose it has extra importance when you're scrapping for your life down there. Yeah, of course. And I think as well, any of the teams in the the bottom six or seven, 
it's quite close in terms of quality. You know, it's not there's not teams that are cut adrift. So I think with Newcastle, you, you can see obviously Eddie Howe what he's doing is working. It's a brand of football that Newcastle fans tend to like, a bit more attacking, a bit more forward thinking. And and I think Newcastle now they they feels like they're on a good footing now. They're to kind of get away from that relegation zone, and then they can start afresh next season with obviously all this money now they've got in the bank. Yeah, I mean, talking about the money they've got, they've bought some really impressive players. Trippier was very good against Everton, scored a good free kick. Um, but the big coup, Rob, was Bruno Gimaresh, who was attracting a lot of interest. That was a bit of a surprise to, to many inside the industry that Newcastle managed to pull that one off. What does that say, do you think, about their ambitions going forward as a football club? Well, it's a big sign, and I think it was also interesting to what Gimaresh said himself when he signed about his kind of being convinced about the future well-being of Newcastle and what they're going to do in the years ahead. And as you said, he was a player highly linked with some top teams, you know, 40, 50 million pound defensive midfielder who can do different things. He's ready built for the Premier League. So I think Newcastle really stole a march there by getting a player as good as him for this relegation battle because he's someone that could be really important now in the next two or three seasons. Yeah, I'm really excited to see how he gets on. As for Aston Villa, they made some really impressive signings as well during the January transfer window. Almost feels like this game, Franny, is a clash between the two sides who have had the most eyes on them during that January window. They brought in Coutinho, who performed well. Obviously, they signed uh, Danny Ings in the summer. They've made some pretty astute signings, have Aston Villa in recent seasons. Um, But now Gerrard has come in. Uh, it's almost like they've got that extra bit of impetus because of the kind of the prestige that he brings to the club. Yeah, and, and I guess when you're a supporter of a club or a follower of a club that that has these kind of names joining the club, uh, there's always a buzz and an excitement around the the, the, the club and the team, and it's um, it's an interesting one. It's it's going to be a, a fascinating fixture. This one, it, it is two clubs, as you say, that have got new managers, relatively new managers and, and, and players joining the club as well. And, and, you know, sort of both clubs going through that, that kind of transition, really. And um, Newcastle are quite clearly sort of got a, a, a fight on their hands to, to want to stay in the division. But, you know, with the new ownership as well and, um, you know, there's, I, I guess, cause for both sets of supporters to, to be very, very excited and very confident. Um, you know, not just for this game, but but also for, for looking ahead further beyond this season as well. Talking about Coutinho and Steven Gerrard, the manager Gerrard actually picked up on Jacob Ramsey's performance in their midweek three-all draw with Leeds. And he said that having played for England himself and being someone who's been around the Premier League for a number of years, he thinks that Jacob Ramsey's got the quality to be a real superstar in the future. How much confidence do you think that will give Ramsey to hear that coming from Gerard, and how much developing and learning can he still do under the likes of Gerard, and also playing alongside someone as good as Coutinho in the middle of the park? Well, it's 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 huge, isn't it? I mean, when you've got one of the the, the best midfielders of an era, you know, coming in as your manager and saying that publicly, uh, you know, quite clearly, there's conversations that I had privately and on the training ground and in the dressing room, um, but. You know, when you hear a, a manager come out and say that publicly as well, it's it's a huge thing for a youngster. I mean, he's he's having a great season. You know, he's a joint level top goal scorer with Ollie Watkins with five goals this season. And um, you know, those two goals against Leeds United, he he showed a a, a calmness and a confidence uh, in scoring both those goals, uh, which you know, quite understandably, led to Gerard making these comments. And uh, yeah, it's it's exciting when you're. You're obviously sort of for the national team's perspective when you've got sort of young talent like this coming through and 
he's certainly going to be one of those players that we'll, we'll all sort of keep a close eye on. Just finally on this one then, Rob, how much of an asset is a goal-scoring midfielder? I mean, we say that, you know, goals are currency in football and all of the big money is spent on strikers. But to have a midfielder like Jacob Ramsey, who knows where the net is, how much of an asset is that for a club to have someone who's able to, to find the back of the net from those midfield positions? Positionally, I think it's almost the biggest asset now in, in football teams. You know, we talk about full systems where midfielders now play as strikers and drop in. If you can have uh, players who, you know, can be in and around that number 10 position and score lots of goals or get lots of assists, we've seen it at Manchester United, haven't we, with Bruno Fernandes? There was a big difference between Manchester United pre-Bruno and Manchester United post-Bruno. So I think that that applies to, to most football clubs now. And you look at someone like Ramsey and Coutinho at Villa, they're now set up for next season already. So the next few months is almost like practice. Let's get this together. Let's let's kind of get down with Jared's tactics. And if they have another good transfer window in the summer, I really do think that they're going to be top six, top seven contenders, potentially European place. Yeah, interesting clash this one in the Premier League this weekend. Newcastle welcome Aston Villa to St. James's Park. Now, another game with implications at the bottom of the table. Everton versus Leeds at Goodison Park. Two sides that are right on the precipice of being sucked into that relegation battle. Some might argue Everton are already in one. Frank Lampard's first game in charge of the Toffees was a real success, beating Brentford 4-1 in the FA Cup, Franny. But it was a real bump back down to earth against Newcastle midweek. This, for me, is probably the biggest game of the weekend. It's massive with both sides so close to one another in the table and so close to the drop zone. Oh, it is. It's huge, isn't it? I mean, there's, well, only three, four points, I think it is, uh, between them. But it's it's also close down there, isn't it? It's, um, you know, Lampard, I'm sure, will be, you know, disappointed uh, on the back of the, 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 the good FA Cup victory against Brentford uh, to then cr- come crashing back down, as you say. And it's... Um, I guess it's you know he's learning a lot about he would have seen already in his his short time at the club what he has there at Everton, but also what he needs to do to stabilise I guess the club and 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 take it forward because quite clearly a, a club of Everton's size and Frank Lampard wouldn't have joined the club had he not seen the potential there to to progress and improve and um, you know maybe having gone in through the doors now he's he's really realised and having seen what has happened in recent times, what work he has on his hands to, to, to get them up the table and, and stabilise them as a club and, and, and move the club forward. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's work in progress for sure. And I think Frank is somebody that is, is more than capable of, uh, of, of turning things around for them. Someone said earlier this week on the show, Franny, that the honeymoon period for Frank Lampard is over after one game because Everton just aren't in the position to be able to afford a, a honeymoon period. In your experience as a player, how quickly is that confidence eroded or erased when a new manager comes in? We talk about this fabled new manager bounce where all the players are really trying to impress the new gaffer. You win 4-1 in your first game, but then you lose to a relegation rival in earnest in Newcastle in your second game. Just how quick would those Everton players have gone from feeling quite good about themselves to then bumping back down to earth? It's, it's a setback. I, you know, you don't lose complete confidence, I wouldn't say. Um, I think having somebody like Frank come through the door is uh, is a big thing. Naturally, you know, I, obviously I can't speak for the players that are there themselves, but I would have no hesitation in thinking that he would have earned the respect of the players walking through the dressing room door. I've, I've experienced that as, a, as a, a, a player myself when former players, then managers come in uh, to the dressing room and 
you know, there's there, there's an element straight away that you know you you that you you earn their respect or they've earned your respect, and uh, as what they've done as players, clearly that's different as managers, and you know you listen to their 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 philosophies, their ideas, their talks, and you know I I I think that whatever Frank will be saying, the players will be buying into that. I'm sure there's always an element of maybe one or two players that that might not be part of his plans and figuring within his future, uh, and Everton's future that. There may be a little bit of a discontent with one or two, but but that happens any time when managers come in. There's there's that 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 rotation of a squad to a certain degree, and players that that fit into the new manager's ideas, uh, and others that don't. And we've seen that you know a little bit with Tottenham with Conte. You know, uh, you know he's he's made it clear maybe in the window with players coming and going already. So I'm I'm sure that's the same under Frank to a degree, but from the players' perspective, I'm sure they're fully with him. Yeah, I guess Frank hasn't got long to figure out what those issues are, but it's not the easiest question to put your finger on, Rob, is it? Well, I mean, what's gone wrong at Everton this season? We saw Rafa Benitez, his appointment was a bit of a disaster when it comes to Everton and what their ambitions were at the start of the season. Uh, we know what Rafa's tactics are, but it wasn't working. The fans weren't behind him. They certainly feel like they're behind Frank Lampard. But what are the, some of the key issues you think Everton have faced this season, which leaves them in the position that they're in? I think long-term, Everton have had uh, big ideas of grandeur, obviously, with the investment that they've had over the years. But their recruitment has been really poor. So, you know, manager to manager to manager, they've gone out and they've made the wrong signings. Now, Frank Lampard's obviously only been in the door a few minutes. They've brought in Deli Alley. They've brought in Donny van der Beek. It's now about whether these players can make an impact. And at the wrong end of the division, it's really, really tough. So I think for Frank himself, it's now trying to find something that he couldn't do at Chelsea, and that is have a strong defence, something from his coach and his tactics to be able to stop the goals going in. So the last game, not particularly a good sign for that. But I like Lampard as a coach. I think that you know he will have the respect to the players at Everton. There's no doubt about that. But they're two points above Norwich and everyone thought Norwich were buried only a few weeks ago. So they are in a bona fide, genuine relegation fight. Yeah, they're in serious trouble and Frank Lampard will need a result against Leeds. I think the fact this game at Goodison Park, much like we said about St. James's Park, I think if the fans can really get behind them and if the fans identify the fact that they are in a relegation battle and they the players need the support of the supporters, I think that that might play a, a huge part between now and the end of the season. I wanted to ask you, Rob, as a, a Manchester United supporter, um, about Dan James, of course, leads the visitors to Goodison this weekend, performed really well Midweek, do you think he was given a fair chance at Old Trafford? Do you think it was the right decision for him to move on, or is there more to come from him? Do you believe? I think there's more to come from him. You know, I think that as a player in terms of development, when we brought him to the football club, it was always a case that he was going to be a bit of a long-term project, very, very quick, plenty of skill, but not a lot of end product. I think you can see that his style fits Bielsa and fits Leeds. I think you know we talked there about attacking midfielders, didn't we? And the false system, and I think he's kind of played through the middle a little bit for Leeds. And he's scoring goals. So I think that like Leeds is a good home for him to to take the next step. And I said when we told him that he could be one of those that comes back to bite you. So in two or three years' time, that if he's really kicked on and become a, a bona fide Premier League talent, you could see that with his pace and with the ideas that he has on a football pitch, he could become a very, very useful weapon for Leeds United. Right, Everton take on Leeds, Goodison Park this weekend. Huge game with massive implications at the bottom end of the table. And a game with implications in the top four race takes place at Old Trafford. It's the early kickoff on Saturday. Manchester United against Southampton. This is the game that you two wanted to get stuck into. So let's talk about it. Um, United, Rob, 
We mentioned it right at the top of the show. Loads of chances against Middlesbrough in the FA Cup and against Burnley midweek. They just haven't been able to finish them. But are there enough positives there and enough chances being created to suggest that that will flip at some point in the near future and they'll have enough to finish in the top four come the season's end? Personally, yes, I think it's it's been really good. Like I've said this, I think, for the last few weeks, the, the football that we've seen under Ralph Ranić is tight, it's concise, it's tactically aware. They do all the stuff that they weren't doing under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. The issue has been, obviously, putting the ball in the back of the net. Now, you hope with players like Bruno Fernandes and Cristiano Ronaldo in your team, Edison Cavani, that you're going to get chances and you're eventually going to score them, and that turns. I think when you look at the cup exit, I think that was a bit of a freak result. You know, United, there, you know, how they let that one go, I don't know. And when you get to penalties, you lose. But then you look at the other night and United had the ball in the back of the net three times. And I think certainly one of those disallowed goals was highly, highly contentious. So, uh, you know, a slight change in luck in those two matches. And I think we're talking about this game here with Southampton with slightly a different viewpoint. But... I know the United fans are obviously not happy. You can see with social media and Twitter that people are are still just pulling their hair out about Manchester United results. But overall, I think there's been an improvement and Ralph just has to try and continue that now match to match. Do Manchester United need a bona fide number nine in the summer as a sign-in, Rob? Because Edinson Cavani, we know, is more than likely to move on at the end of the season. Obviously, Cristiano's on a two-year contract, so he probably will stay, but he's not getting any younger. He's 37 now. Martial's away on loan at Sevilla, and we know that Rashford and some of the other players in the squad are probably more suited to playing out wide. Elanga as well, you could probably put into that category. So do you think that a number nine is required to be able to get on the end of these chances and, and, and make United a little bit more clinical in front of goal? No, I think the first thing they need is a bona fide number six. So go out there, you build from the back, and you you can look at United's issues and see them just take the last game where I think Harry Maguire had a had a poor match, and that's something that we've seen through the United defence going back to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And I think they need to build from those positions forward. So if you have a number six and number eight that can get up and down the pitch, you'll create better chances. And if you've got strikers like Cristiano Ronaldo, Cavani of that ilk, then you're going to score goals. So I think for United, it's about trying to create better chances as opposed to just having a number nine. I really do think the game's changed now. If you get Haaland, great. You've got a number nine who'll score your goals, but they're few and far between. It's more about players, I think, that join the dots through midfield and then you're getting better chances in and around the box. Yeah, I think I agree with you in terms of that point about strikers because aside from Haaland, there's very few young, promising bona fide strikers that you would consider someone who plays through the middle a lot of them are, are kind of getting on in years like Cristiano Cavani United have got two of those Lewandowski is kind of the, he's you know he's the the blueprint isn't he really but there isn't too many Robert Lewandowski's around so I, I think it's a great point you make about maybe goal scoring midfielders coming into it a little bit more um, as for Southampton they had a a top striker in Danny Ings, who was surprisingly sold to Villa in the summer, Franny. You've also let Bertrand and Vestergaard go from your side in recent times. They were all in the summer, yet you seem to be just fine without them. And I would argue that at times this season, Francis, you've looked a better team in the absence of those players, which is not what some people were suggesting when the season started. Yeah, well, we've, we've seen under Ralph Hasenhutl a couple of seasons ago where he initially wanted to go with a a pretty lean and trim squad and when injuries come at, obviously at a certain stage of the season as it does for every team it showed I think the lack of depth and experience that we had within the squad and that affected some results and 
He's addressed that. I think the transfer window during the the, the summer. Yes, you, you you point to Danny Ings. I guess that was a player that nobody at Southampton wanted to ideally move, um, but that's down to the player quite clearly. Um, and when that sort of decision was made, and we knew that that was going to be the case, there was obviously other departures, as you say, with Birch and Vestergaard. Um, I, I think there's been an element of recruitment that's that's worked again for Southampton. You know, he's got every position covered. Um, maybe there's, I guess the the surprise in some degree has been the level of performances of some of the younger players like Livermento, Broya, um, you know, players like that that have had a real impact um, and been a, a massive plus. And I think we've just seen that belief and confidence, especially in recent times, uh, just grow and grow. And that's reflected in the team climbing the, the, the table and, and, and the fact that they didn't do any work in the, 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 the sort of uh, winter transfer window. I think that with new owners coming in again, um, you know, all leads to hopefully having a, a good run in for the rest of the season, hopefully some success in a, a, a cup run as well. And it, it all points towards being maybe a, an exciting and interesting summer uh, for, for next season if, if things continue to go in the direction they are. You've already touched upon it during the show. Really good win over Spurs midweek. Does that mean that Southampton travelled to Old Trafford with a little bit more confidence than they would have initially had? Do you know what? If, if you'd asked me before the, the, the Tottenham game, I, with respect to Rob and United, I would have said that the, the Tottenham fixture maybe would have been the one that we were most sort of wary of. Um, but having said that, listen, you, you, you can't take away the fact that this is Manchester United, it's Old Trafford, uh, regardless of what and where Manchester United are at the moment, it's still going to be a difficult game um, without saying it's, you know, the, coming up against players of this ilk um, and Ranić as well, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a difficult game. Uh, but yes, on the back of how Saints have been doing, they'll go there full of confidence for sure, uh, especially on the back of this result against Tottenham. The the challenges, I guess, for for you know Southampton and any any teams is this is a difficult week. You know, clubs have come into this on the back of a a cup game, a midweek fixture, and it's that squad rotation. It'll be interesting to see lineups on on both sides. You know, what what players will start, who's going to perform, and it's back to that adage of you know you're back to square one and doing all those things that you do to have to win a a, a game of football at this elite level and. Um, that's the challenge for everybody and it'd be a fascinating game this one. Final question on this game and it's of Manchester United persuasion so certainly one for you Rob. Paul Pogba hasn't played since October since he was sent off against Liverpool in that crushing defeat yet he's come back into the side recently and he's slotted right in. We know how good a player he is but he's looked comfortable, he's readjusted really well. Um, How much of an influence do you think he could have between now and the end of the season for Manchester United if he stays fit? Well, Paul Pogba could be the difference between fourth and fifth for Manchester United. It's kind of as simple as that. Um, you know, I'm one of those Manchester United people who backs Paul Pogba and always does. You know, I think there's lots of people that are always frustrated with him or maybe, you know, the kind of social media star that he is or the kind of their, their his haircut or something else they don't like about him that week. But for me, 
he's one of the best midfielders in the world. You know, I really do believe that. And we've even just seen that in this kind of small sample size of when he's come back from injury about how much influence he can have on that midfield. You've just got to remember with Manchester United is that in the middle of the park, they just haven't got a lot of talent. So when you've got someone like Paul Pogba, if you can integrate him into the system, then he's going to give you plenty of kind of outlay from the number six or number eight position. And he can even play off a striker. So there's there's lots of ways that Ralph uh, 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 Ralph Ranick can use him. Of course, this now coming up is the Red Bull derby, as I've been calling it, because I think mean, with the, <laughs> the two Ralphs from the Red Bull system playing very similar styles of four two 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 from as a kind of cornerstone of their their formations, it's going to be really really interesting to see how it goes. But I think Pogba, I'd like to see him playing a little bit higher up the pitch. And I think the you know I think with the with the Ronaldo penalty miss the other day, that would have been. Pogba's eighth assist of the season and he's not even played a match hardly you know so he could be really really influential for United if they truly have aspirations for top four yeah interesting game this to set set to take place at Old Trafford Manchester United versus Southampton the battle of two Ralphs as you say Rob and it's the Ralph of Southampton persuasion that we're going to talk next about here on the dugout because he suggested that he might retire in a couple of years we'll speak more about that after this the Dugout Premier League Preview Football Social Daily The Dugout Premier League Preview Football Social Daily Welcome back to The Dugout. This is your daily Premier League show. The Dugout is the podcast featuring former Premier League players and Francis Bernali, formerly of Southampton, is with us alongside me and Rob Blanchett. And we wanted to speak to you, Franny, about Ralph Hasenhurtl, the Southampton manager, who said something really interesting last week. He said that he could possibly retire in a couple of years and walk away from the game. I'm not sure whether that was tongue-in-cheek in reference to Roy Hodgson being well into his mid-70s and still giving management a good old crack. But what did you make of what Ralph Hasenhurtl had to say? Well, you're right now. I guess you always wonder maybe how the the comment or the, the, the quote may be interpreted or was meant. Um, but I've, I've seen Ralph take a, a couple of questions on this since it, it aired. Um I guess like any manager, you know, quite clearly he's he's been open and honest in a way from the, the responses I've seen from him that uh, says that, you know, he, this is a couple of years down the line that his contract is due to expire. And he, at this moment in time, he doesn't genuinely know what he maybe wants to do going forward. And I, I guess maybe a lot of people and maybe myself included, you think, well, OK, he's he's doing well. He's in the Premier League. He's doing something that he quite clearly has a passion and a love for. But, you know, everybody has their own opinions and thoughts and wishes what they want to do with their life and their careers. And maybe he is one of those people that doesn't want to be doing this into his, his latter years. And, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting one, but uh, I, I guess it quite clearly raises questions. And um, it's, it's something that, you know, maybe on the back of the result against Spurs this week, you know, you could see the emotion um, and the enjoyment that he had from you know, winning that game against Spurs in what was his 500th game as a manager. Uh, so whether there's another 500, I'd, I'd, I'd question, maybe, to be honest. And it, and it is. I just know, knowing him as a, a, a man and a, how he manages as well, he's, he very much seems like he's one of these managers that it's, it's 24-7. You know, for these guys at this level, it's, it's all-consuming. We can see the passion and, you know, the, the, the way that he, he sort of 
is literally invested in every single second of 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 football and that, that's not just Southampton football club I think it's just how he and many others are at this level so yeah it, it was interesting um but quite clearly as I saw in one of his his, his other answers was that you know he's got to keep performing because quite clearly as we know you know there there may be a, a situation where he he may not be in a position to see his contract out. I, I certainly hope that's not the case. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's just modern football, isn't it? You kind of have to caveat every managerial appointment with saying, you know, it's a results business and you never know, you know, managers are always only a few games away from possibly moving on or losing their job. Do you think that what Franny says there, Rob, about, you know, being a football manager is such an intense lifestyle and it's all encompassing that that's kind of what encouraged Ralph Hasenhurtl, albeit it might have been slightly tongue in cheek to make those comments. Yeah, I do. And I think as well, any of us that kind of work in the football industry isn't a really intense arena to be part of. And sometimes you just get to a point where you think, do I still want to do this thing? We've all kind of been there at one stage or another. I think with Ralph Hasenhutl, you know, he's one of my favourite coaches, certainly in the Premier League. He's always been someone that I've liked. I think when you kind of put the numbers together, you know, he's on about five million pounds a year. So between now and the end of his contract, he'll earn 10 million quid. If he wants to go away and retire, good luck to him. You know, I just think that it's the way it is now. Being in the Premier League is a, is a tough place to be. And when you're there year after year after year, going in at 7.30 every morning, going home at 7.30 every night, and then you've got that weight of potentially being in a relegation scrap or stuff happening behind the scenes at the football club or in the press, it's a tough lifestyle. So I, I think that when he said that to the German press, it might have been tongue-in-cheek, but I think also there is some truth to it there where, where the younger managers now, because they earn the money, they don't have to work till they're 70 anymore. They don't have to do what managers of the past have done. You know, we see Roy Hodgson coming back. They don't have to do that at that age group anymore. You can certainly go and sit on a beach a lot earlier in life and enjoy your family and enjoy all the good things around you. I think it's a great point and I think it's one that we often overlook as as football fans and supporters about just how difficult life can be as a football player um, behind the scenes with the intensity and the scrutiny and, and all of the rest of it. Um, I guess like what you said earlier with Southampton probably wanting to go on a cup run, my question would be as a cynical Portsmouth fan, uh, why would he retire now? Would he not want to achieve something with the club first and if he is in the position to be able to, to do that, surely that would be the time to go out rather than... I don't know, a mid-table finish in the Premier League. But I suppose the the other flip side is what Rob says, when you feel like you're done, that's when you're done, Franny, I guess. Yeah, well, with only a couple of years left on his contract, sort of FA Cup success in Champions League, he can fulfil that within that time frame anyway. <laughs> no, so that's, that's great. Got no problems. <laughs> if that does happen, I will happily never show my face on this podcast again. I promise you that. Um, obviously, we kind of, I think, encapsulate this Francis is maybe a, a bit of a throwaway comment or one that shouldn't be taken too seriously. Um, but you're right, it does raise a couple of questions. And I suppose one of the questions are, you know, if he has only got a couple of years left on his deal and that we're not sure whether he will sign a new one at some point or what the deal might be come the end of those two years, does Southampton need to be proactive and thinking ahead already about maybe a succession plan? Is that kind of a hint from... From, from sort of subconscious from Ralph? I, I think it's, it's quite clear that any any club at this level now, whether it's a manager or a player, the, the, there's always that, that scenario where there could be a change, um, whether that's the manager's decision, player's decision, the club's decision. So, yeah, the, the, there's always going to be, you know, that uh, succession plan and, and, and 
options about if a certain situation arises, what what is going to be the 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 the, the plan for for the club ultimately, and 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 they'll have you know processes in place and and procedures that will kick in as and when those sort of scenarios arise. So if they arise, um, but yeah, I'd, I'd certainly like to think that you know we're we're, we're sat doing a podcast in a, a couple of years time where we're we're talking about the success of. Ralph Hasenhutl at Southampton and, and and a future deal, but again, maybe the success of him as a manager, if if things do keep continuing, um, I, I hate to say it, but very much like uh, you know players impressing that clubs like Southampton and others, there's always a possibility if he's that successful and does that well, other clubs might come looking for his services, and um, that's another another you know sort of potential scenario that could you know could be faced okay just finally on that then rob um franny's right he's he's a coach that you admire he's a coach that many people in the premier league admire um graham potter's another one that often gets linked with some of the bigger jobs is that something you can see happening with ralph hasenhurt or him possibly moving on to to pastures new at some point or do you think that with some coaches they get the perfect fit, don't they? And, and Haas and Hurtle seems to be a good fit for Southampton right now. I don't think there's any coach in the world, certainly in the, in the top divisions, that when a better team comes along that you're not at least interested. So you might have a good chemical fit with the team. You know, I think Potter and Brighton are a good example. Hassan Hutter and Southampton are a good example. But Southampton themselves have had tough times under that manager. And there were times when we thought that maybe that was the end of the road for him. You're just saying there about, you know, you know, I like Hassan Hutor. I would have him at Manchester United tomorrow, but I don't think most Manchester United fans would want that. So I think these tracksuit managers are are really important in the modern game. Again, people have got different tactics and can do different things with players who maybe are not at the highest level. But I do think Hassan Hutor, I, I thought that maybe Tottenham would go for him before they got Conte. I thought that kind of step for him would be logical. But we've got to wait and see now. I think... You know, if he thinks uh, in two years' time he can't see himself doing this anymore, it's probably better that he's honest with himself right now and makes plans to move on himself. And of course, then that means the succession planning at Southampton can start and they can look for their next coach. Yeah, I do wonder what the situation will be with Ralph Hasenhurtle at the moment, though. He's very much in situ and will take his side to Old Trafford. Ralph versus Ralph, as we say, and another almost disciple of Ralph Rangnick, who's known as the father of Gegenpressing, the current interim Manchester United boss, is Thomas Tuchel. And his Chelsea side, after they won the Champions League last season, are now competing in the Club World Cup. They're through to Saturday's final after a Lukaku goal was enough to see off Al Hilal, who were the winners of the Asian Champions League, and they'll now play Palmeiras, who won the South American version of the Champions League. They're a Brazilian club. Um, that final will take place on Saturday, whilst some of the Premier League games are taking place. So, of course, Chelsea will have catch-up to play with games in hand. Now, trophies are trophies, Rob, and you should never turn your nose up at silverware. But this competition, the Club World Cup, what do you make of it? Is it a disruption or is it a privilege to play in? Maybe it's both. Well, I've got experience of it. Obviously, with Manchester United and their little ventures in the Club World Cup and not doing particularly well in it. Um, <laughs> uh, when we say trophies are trophies, not all trophies are made equally. So uh, <laughs> I think as far as Chelsea are concerned, yes, they're there because they want to win it and they've got a good chance against uh, Palmeiras. But Palmeiras are, are a team with history. You know, they are the Manchester United of Brazil. They're, they're going there to win themselves. And I think for them to, to beat Chelsea in the final would be an even bigger story because I think Chelsea won the Club World Cup you know, the trophy goes in the in the kind of back room there. You get that little badge that says you're the club World Cup winners and you stick it on your on your kit for a year and that's about as good as it gets. So I, I think the 
in some ways, this this little uh, journey out there playing this tournament could hurt their Premier League chances. You know, kind of knocks you off kilter a little bit. So we'll see. It might have a might be a blessing in disguise, but I don't actually think there's a lot of value in this trophy as it stands. I think it's a really interesting debate to have, Franny, because at the end of a campaign, when you win the Champions League or the Premier League or the FA Cup, when all of those finals are right at the end of the season in you know end of April, early May, you can let off that steam. You can relax a little bit and think, okay, this is a season's worth of hard work and we can kind of go out and enjoy ourselves and celebrate the moment. But for Chelsea, if they win the Club World Cup, which would be a great achievement for them, they'll then just have to kind of put that away to the back of their minds for the time being and just crack on with Premier League business as soon as they touch down back in the UK. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, personally, it's uh, it's one of those things that if it's your club that are in the competition and taking part, it's maybe a, a bit of an added attraction in some ways and it's something a bit different to what we're normally used to. Um, for Chelsea themselves, I agree with Rob, I, I, I don't think, it's ideally great at this stage of the season to be travelling and playing in this competition. Um, from a Premier League perspective, I, I don't think that's particularly helpful whatsoever. Um, it'll be remain to be seen how it might affect them when they come back and pick up the reins here again. But uh, yeah, it's, it's it's one of those things that's... I, I, I guess the, the, the thing for me, ultimately, is that up until maybe a day or so ago, it never really got the coverage that you know we're talking about it now. I haven't really seen it splashed about or talked about massively. So, it, you know, from I guess from our perspective in in our division and what we're looking at, the you know, Premier League, uh, Champions League, it's maybe not that big a thing in many ways. So, it's certainly a distraction and maybe not a helpful one from Chelsea, Chelsea's point of view. Yeah, I, I remember, seem to remember some controversy from a few years ago. Maybe, Rob, you can clear this up if my memory doesn't serve me correctly. But did Manchester United not refuse to play in the competition or they, they refused to play in the FA Cup because of the competition? There was some sort of controversy a few years ago, wasn't there? Yeah, Manchester United won the, the treble in 1999 and they were then ordered by the FA who were in the middle of a bid to host the World Cup to go and play in this tournament, which had been invented by FIFA, in Brazil. So Manchester United shipped the players out there to Brazil. They played terribly. They went on sat on a beach for a week and they came back and you know went on a Premier League charge again. Um, we've got to remember with the Club World Cup, this is FIFA's attempt to kind of put its imprint on club football. It would love to have a tournament like the Champions League to generate their money every season. So there's a lot of politics around this. And one of the reasons why... Football clubs themselves are not particularly enamoured by it is they just don't really want to be part of it because that takes the money and the power away from them and gives it to another organisation. So certainly UEFA are not telling the press to cover this tournament because UEFA really don't want their Champions League aspirations for their tournament, you know, contravened by FIFA. So it's a political game, unfortunately, and that's why the value of the trophy itself is so small. And as as Franny just said there, you know, the press are not particularly interested in it. I've spoken to two or three people at Chelsea. All they care about is that none of their players get injured in this next game because they need them for this Premier League and Champions League charge. They're the trophies that matter. This is just a nice little thing to win. It's a one-day story. And yeah, you'd want to win it. But if you don't win it, I think it's kind of forgotten about the next day. The team they just beat would probably be a League One team in the <laughs> Premier, in England. So you've got to have a little bit of perspective on that. This is not the, the Champions League of world football. This is really a little bit of a break for the Chelsea players. And now they've got to go and beat Palmeiras. 
Yeah, do you think that's part of it? As Rob says, Franny, it's a case of we don't really, uh, whether that's in our ignorance or not, we don't really take in South American club football in this country, but certainly European club football. That's the pinnacle. And the prestige of the European Cup or, you know, the Champions League with Celtic being the first British team to win it through to uh, Manchester United doing it in the 60s, Nottingham Forest in the 70s, all of those Liverpool trophies in the 80s. And then in more recent uh, years, we've seen Chelsea uh, Liverpool and Manchester United do it all again. Um, you know, I can reel off all of those historical moments in the European Cup, but when it comes to the Club World Cup, it's a case of I couldn't tell you who even won it last season or who was in it last season. It just, it just feels because it's been manufactured for a purpose. It doesn't have that same emotion attached to it. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's more than fair to say. And, and as Rob says, you know, there's there's maybe those political reasons around it between the different organisations. The football world, um, yeah, it's just one of those things that is is different. It's like I say, if you're in you're in it, it's something that you're going to take part in, but far from helpful from the club's point of view themselves, and certainly from a, a, a following perspective, I think, and an interest point of view, it's it's something that's very brief, and you know, the Premier League and all the other football um, that we see here. In, in the UK and in Europe is is our priority, really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wonder how Chelsea will get on that final against Palmeiras is on Saturday. Our eyes will be on Premier League football. Um, Francis and Rob will have already done battle, not physically, just metaphorically, as uh, Southampton <laughs> and Manchester United face off. Uh, don't forget, Fergal Brennan will be back on Sunday to look back at those games that take place across the Premier League weekend. So if you hit subscribe, that way you won't miss that episode. But Franny, Rob, I'll leave you to do battle all this weekend that's it from us and we'll catch you next time here on the dugout the dugout premier league preview football social daily